0: All right, friends, go ahead and grab a seat. Thankful that you're all with us this morning. Thank you for giving your time to be with God's people, to worship the King. It's no small thing that you're here, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful to Continue in our series called Image Bearers uh, this morning. Um, and like Kevin said, you know, we're taking a few weeks to better understand this concept of the image of God. That as, as humans, we bear God's image. And like I said last week, that doctrine is woven throughout the scriptures. Uh, but it, it finds its kind of origins, its roots, its beginning in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Let me just read this to you one more time. I read it last week. I'll read it again. Genesis one twenty six. Then God said... of God. We we reflect God and we represent God to the rest of creation and to one another and the hope for these few weeks has been to take a look at the ways that our culture is kind of pressing in on and challenging this idea in one way or another and see how the Bible directs us as the church to respond. Now last week we talked about life and uh, the crisis of abortion in our culture. And there's a common critique of the pro-life movement. Okay, it goes something like this. Once the baby is born, you are no longer pro-life. You don't care anymore about Life, okay, there's a charge made against people who are pro-life that we're hypocrites, that, that, uh, that babies are protected in the womb, but the, the moment that they're born that there's very few pro-lifers that are actually doing the work of caring for women and children. Now, first of all, that's not actually a true allegation. If you look at the, the figures, it's very clear that people who are pro-life are also on the front lines of caring for people in need. Uh, but it is a fair question, and it's a fair concern. Right? The fact of the matter is that if we say that all humans bear the image of God and they're all therefore worthy of dignity and protection, then our ethic about life should be comprehensive. Right? That's, that's a fair concern. We should care about the dignity of all people, especially those who are most vulnerable. Now that's exactly what we're aimed at today in the in the in the concept of justice for the marginalized okay we're going to look at how this doctrine of the image of god impacts the lives of those people in the world who are in the margins who are who who are maybe feeling invisible and we're going to see how gospel justice can bring greater dignity and agency and flourishing to people all around us okay there's three points this morning justice and image bearers justice and justification and then last, justice and the gospel. Okay? First, justice and image bearers. The idea here is that the image of God matters most, to those who are most vulnerable? Yeah, we're back. Welcome back. I missed you guys. Um, the image of God matters most to those who are most vulnerable. Um, now, you might be curious about the title of this sermon, Justice for the Marginalized. Okay, perhaps, perhaps you're thinking something like, I, I, I know that we should care for people on the margins. I, I understand that there's brokenness in the world around us and, and God's image bearers are worthy of dignity and compassion. I get all that. But to, to many of us, that word justice feels like the wrong word, doesn't it? You, maybe, maybe you're saying like, Aaron, perhaps you should have used the word compassion or, or mercy or care. Okay? And now, if you're thinking that, that's a pretty normal concern. It's, it's, it's a normal feeling. Okay? That's because we have a tendency to view the word, the idea of justice, through a pretty narrow lens in our culture. But the idea of justice in the Bible is far more comprehensive than we realize, and I want to show that to you. Okay? Justice, of course, is tied to the character of God. It flows from his holiness, his righteousness, and it shows that he is worthy of glory and honor and dominion and praise and all of those things. And it's also written into the core of creation. There's a longing for the wrongs to be made right. Okay, in Romans, what Paul says is that on, the, on every human heart, we have this imprint. We, we know at the core of who we are, what is right and what is wrong. And part of this idea of bearing God's image is that at the core of our being, we have a longing for the wrongs to be made right. We have a deep desire for the brokenness of the world to be rectified. But sin can, can, can skew that desire, can, can mess it up for us. It can suppress the truth, as Romans says, okay? It can cause us to see ourselves as the dispensers of justice rather than the ones who deserve it. There's no, in my mind, better example of this than the story of David, King David from the Old Testament. You probably know David. Everybody knows David and Goliath, right? Um, but later on in David's life, as he become king, becomes king of Israel, he's in the palace as his armies are Off at war, and he sees a woman, Bathsheba, bathing on the rooftop. And he, many think, using his power, his kingly authority coerces her into being with him, even though she's a married woman. And when her husband, the righteous man Uriah, comes back to town uh, for a little bit, he has an interaction with David, and he shows that he's a righteous and good man. And so David, to cover up his sin of adultery, sends Uriah off to the front lines of war so that he is killed. So in in an instant in David's life, he is guilty of both adultery and murder amongst many other sins. And David is confronted by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes to David, and he tells him a story. He tells him a story of a rich man and a poor man. He says, King, there's a rich man who has all that he could ever need, all the flocks, all the cows and sheep and pigs and pigeons and whatever else you needed in that time, right? And there's a poor man. The poor man has one solitary lamb to his name who he loves with all his heart. And one day, a friend of this rich man was coming to town, O king, and instead of killing one of his own livestock to feed as a feast for his friend, he takes from the poor man that one lamb. going on, but here we are again. Uh, He feeds that lamb of the poor man to his friend. And it says in that moment, as he's hearing this story, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Even when you're confronted with your own sin. You feel this, the injustice that you have caused, the indignation at the wrong of it all. That is suppression of justice if you've ever seen it. And of course, the prophet Nathan says to King David, King, you are that rich man, and he calls him to account. And David, by the grace of God, turns from his sin and tries as, he, as best he can to make it right. Okay, this, is, this, though, is often what we think of when we think of justice. A wrong has been committed, and something has to be fixed. Something has to be reconciled. It must be made right, whether through punishment or restitution. Wickedness must be judged. Okay, this is indeed part of what the Bible means and part of God's character in regards to justice. And that's called retributive justice. It's a, a phrase to understand this. Okay? This is righting the wrongs, delivering punishment, For those who have wronged and mistreated others, every wrong must be righted through God's work. At the end of the day, friends, all penalties will be paid, all sentences will be served, justice will be done. Some justice will be delivered in this life, but ultimately God will deliver perfect retributive justice to every single image bearer, every one of them. Okay? And in fact, there are some people in this room, in this church, who do the daily work of bringing about retributive justice to the world around us. Right? Think of law enforcement officers and lawyers and judges and government officials. Okay, part of that role, who, those people exist for the common good, and, and they're all there to play a part in bringing about, never perfectly, thank you, <laughs> uh, f- flourishing the good for God's people in delivering God's retributive justice, okay? Now, this is important. It's an important part of the way that the Bible talks about justice, but it's actually a somewhat minor part. One commentator I read this week said, if you were to put a percentage on retributive justice in the way that God talks about justice in the Bible, it would be about 10% of the time. This is, this is coming up, okay? Uh, most of us don't deal with retributive justice Very much at all, right? In fact, the call of the church is to entrust ourselves, as we'll see later, to a God who judges things perfectly. We're to look forward to the day when every wrong will be righted and we're gonna meanwhile endure suffering with faith in God's perfect provision. But what's the other 90% you ask? That's a good question. Something called restorative justice, okay? Restorative justice simply is proactive care for those that are vulnerable in the world around us. Okay, this is seeing the needs of those who are lacking around us and meeting those needs with compassion. Now, the Bible has some very specific situations in mind when it talks about restorative Justice uh, because this sinful world leads to a place where people get pushed into the margins. There's a religious philosophy guy at Yale named Nicholas Walterstorff, which is a great last name, uh, and he coined the term the Quartet of the Vulnerable. That's what the Bible is talking about primarily when it talks about uh, restorative justice, it's talking about four primary groups of people. It's not, not comprehensive, but primarily the, the poor, the widow the orphan or the fatherless, and the sojourner or the immigrant or the alien, depending on what translation of the Bible you're looking at. Okay, these groups of people are the ones that the scriptures have in mind when it talks about this kind of justice. These are the image bearers in our midst that are experiencing a need. And I want to say up front that the reasons for this need, you know, we often ask like, okay, well, how did they... you hear me now? Okay. Uh, How did they get themselves into this situation? How did this, how did this come about? Okay. Let me just say up front that uh, the reasons for this need, this kind of justice are complicated. Okay. And we often don't acknowledge that, right? We tend to look at somebody on the corner with a cardboard sign with skepticism. They go, they're lazy, or they're grifting, or they got themselves into this mess, okay? But often the reason for this kind of marginalization is really complicated, okay? The Bible says it's a mixture of all sorts of things, of oppression, of culture and history, of, of their family background, of personal sin, of natural disasters, okay? Like uh, six months ago, uh, I was about to walk into the service at 8.28 a.m., and Carla calls me, and she goes, hey, do you have our van And I was like, no, do you have our van? Um, And uh, she goes, no, did one of your friends borrow it? Uh, As it turns out, our van was stolen. And I was like, I can't talk about this, I gotta go preach. Um, And, uh, you know... We were talking later about the, the blessing it was that we had insurance, we're at a place of financial stability that we haven't been at ever in our lives before, where if this was five years ago in our life, 10 years ago in our life, like it would have been earth shattering. And so many people live their lives right there on the edge that if one small thing goes wrong, they don't have a safety net, okay? And often we have to understand that's not their fault. Maybe part of it is, maybe all of it is. But nonetheless, the Bible calls us to be people who are engaged with restorative justice. And I just want to say this. I don't know where we are, where each individual in this room is. Okay, some people in this room, as you're hearing this, you're suffering. You're on the margins. Um, You're feeling isolated. You're feeling exposed. You know, the call today might be for you to lean into The body of Christ and find compassion and care. Some of you might feel as if you have some ability, some capacity, some authority to bring about meaningful change in the lives of another. And maybe as a result of this morning, you're going to be called to courageous action. And some of us might be in a place where we feel as if we are responsible for suffering. We have brought about marginalization as a result of our actions. And maybe. We're going to be called to repentance and change. And that's the beauty of preaching, right? I don't know where you are. I don't know what what situation you are in this morning. But I'm just going to say what God has to say through his word. And I'm going to trust that the spirit of God is going to work in each individual heart. Which is a beautiful thing. And so I'm trusting that God is going to work through this time, okay? But regardless of the circumstances, if you are a follower of Jesus, as I said, you are responsible for carrying out restorative justice in the culture around you. I want to convince you of that this morning. I want to show you that that's true from the scriptures, okay? And to show you that, what I want to look at is the connection between justice, as we've talked about, and justification, Justice and justification. And here I want to show you one main biblical idea. The idea here is that the justification that we've received from God, the approval that we've received from God, must be connected to the way that we pursue restorative justice as a church. In other words, our justification before God must always lead to acts of justice for the marginalized. Okay, I want to quickly show you that these two ideas are inextricably linked. We must be about the good news of justification by faith and we must be about doing restorative justice in the world around us. And to not do either of those things means that something's wrong, something's broken. Okay? First, let me explain what I mean by justification. Justification by faith is the core of the Christian faith and that's this. By faith alone, you've been accepted by God. That's the message of the gospel at its core. Okay? Every religion is asking, if, you know, saying, if there's a God in heaven, what do I have to do to be right? What do I have to do to be accepted and united to this God? Every religion is asking that. And every religion, except for Christianity, answers that essentially by saying, you must earn it. You must do the work. Okay? If you obey, if you live the way that you're supposed to live, if you do the right things, then, and only then, will God accept you. Now, the good news, the gospel, says the exact opposite of that. It says that through an act of sheer grace, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we are accepted by God. Amen. Good news, right? We're accepted by God through through grace and grace alone. We've been justified, in other words, beforehand. And it's only through this radical acceptance that we will ever really live the way that we are supposed to, okay? Christianity is shockingly different from every other religion. These are two radically different ways to approach God. We're not justified by our works, but by faith, okay? And from this justification, we don't just get forgiveness, it's not just that we don't deserve punishment anymore. That's a part of it, right? We, we no longer deserve punishment. Jesus takes all of our sins, and he pays them in full, okay? So we're forgiven, but even more than an act of forgiveness, what the gospel proclaims is that we have been given righteousness. We've been given Jesus' righteousness. We're given a new standing before God, even though we don't deserve it. Our skins, our sins are as red as scarlet, but we've been washed as white as the snow. The righteousness of Jesus is put on us. If you've ever seen Les Mis or read the, the book Les Mis, you know the story of Jean Valjean, who is a crook and he steals. Remember, he steals silverware from the bishop. And one night he steals and, and then he gets caught and brought back to the door. Okay, And the, the, the authorities go, Jean Valjean, he's, we've caught him. He's stolen your silverware, bishop. Okay, now in that moment, he's guilty. He deserves punishment, okay? And and the bishop could simply go, I'm not going to press charges, okay? I'm not going to press charges. That's forgiveness. Jean Valjean, you're free to go, okay? But instead, in one of the most beautiful passages in literature, he goes, you took the silverware, but you forgot the candlesticks that I wanted you to take as well. So in that moment, imagine the authorities in that moment, okay? All of a sudden, Valjean goes from being an enemy, a convicted, guilty criminal, not just free to go, but he is now a friend of. He's not just free to leave, he's free to enter into the presence. Imagine the the radical way that the the authorities' demeanor changes towards him. Okay, that's what the gospel says. You've been given Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this. For our sake, he, the father, made him the son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not just escape from punishment. It's more than that. We get all of Jesus' righteousness. So when God looks at you, he sees the perfect life of the perfect son of God. When you place your faith in him, it's beautiful news, okay? But how does that idea that we love so dearly connect to justice? I wanna show you that, okay? And what happens in the church is often that people who are excited about justification aren't doing a lot of restorative justice in the world, and people that are excited about restorative justice aren't talking a lot about the gospel, aren't talking a lot about justification. Okay, to, to put those two things at odds with one another, or to forget one of those things is a huge mistake. Let me show you how. Okay, the simple point is this. Doing justice is the sign that you have been really justified. In other words, if, you, if you're saved by God through grace alone, you will care about the vulnerable. You will care about the marginalized. If you look at the vulnerable in the world and you're not moved to action to care and compassion, then something is wrong in your relationship with God. And and this is all the way through the Bible. I'm gonna take you on a quick journey from beginning to end, okay? I'm not gonna hit every book, okay? But it's all over the place. Let me just hit some some highlights, okay? Deuteronomy 10, in Deuteronomy 10, the people of God are getting the law from God. And he's, he's telling them how they should live their lives. And he says, when a sojourner, An immigrant comes into your midst, an outsider. Don't treat them with scorn. Don't abuse them, but love them. And he says right there in verse 19, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay, he's saying if you don't show love to the outsider, you are forgetting the salvation that you've received. If you abuse the immigrant, you are discounting the grace that you've been given by God. Okay? It's like this all the way through. The prophets, all of the prophets are talking about two main things idolatry and justice. Those are the two main things you hear in the prophets. And when they talk about justice, they are constantly connecting the the justice that we're called to as the people of God to the salvation that we've received. Isaiah 58 Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? This, this concept of fasting It's a way that the people of God would would humble themselves before God, demonstrate a discipline by which they want to demonstrate dependence on God. And what God sees is the people of Israel doing this, acting acting out this religious practice of depriving themselves of food. They're bowing before him. they're, They're hungry. They're putting on sackcloth and ashes. Okay, But they're not caring for the vulnerable. And what Isaiah is saying right here is that when you act contrite, but you don't care for the marginalized, there's a disconnect. It's not about following the rules. It's not about doing what God tells you to do. He's saying there's something broken with your heart. There's something wrong. Micah 6, verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of, of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah's going, you can, you can give it all. You can sacrifice everything you have to God, okay? You can pour out sacrifice, 10,000 rivers of oil, 1,000 rams, my very firstborn for God. And Micah says, it will do nothing for you if your heart is not right. He has told you, oh man, you've heard this verse, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God, if you're not doing justice, then all of this religious effort is just a false veneer of reverence. It shows that you don't really mean it. So the whole Old Testament is saying, you say, okay, well, that's the Old Testament. Does the New Testament change the message? Spoiler alert, it does not. Jesus was very clear about this especially in the way that he spoke to the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders. Okay, he would light them up for their self-righteousness. They loved to follow the rules of God, and they thought that they were showing honor to doing so. But in the final week of his life, Jesus is in the temple, and he delivers to them the woes, okay? These judgments on the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed And self-indulgence, you you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be cleaned. Do you see what he's saying? It's not about the fact they've followed the rules. It's not about the fact that they've broken the rules. It's that something is broken on the inside. Something is wrong with their hearts, with their relationship with God. He says the fact that you don't do acts of justice and mercy is an indication that your heart is full of greed and self-indulgence rather than joy in your salvation. And there's probably not a better place in the New Testament that makes this more explicit than the book of James. Okay, now, people struggle with James. James. Because it seems like James is at odds with what the rest of the New Testament is teaching. It seems to be at odds with that idea of justification by grace alone through faith. Okay? Many people have a hard time because it seems like he's saying something different. Okay? Paul goes, justified by faith alone through grace. And James says this in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Jump down to verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, just look very carefully at what he's saying. Okay? He's not saying that the works save you. He is not saying that, does not mean that. James is not at odds with Paul. He's saying that claiming that you have faith without doing good works is not real faith. Faith will always be manifested in the good works that we do, okay? Real saving faith will always result in good works. What are the good works that James has in mind? Right there in the middle, verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? If you don't show compassion and care to those that are suffering, you are lacking the evidence of your salvation. Now, if you are like me, that sentence hits like a ton of bricks. As I've been reading and studying and trying to prepare for this series and this sermon in particular, it's just so convicting to hear that the salvation that I, and I know you guys love Jesus. I know it. I mean, I've heard these stories this week. I've been trying to get with people who, have, who are on the margins in our church who have been cared for and loved by you as a church so radically. I mean, the stories are incredible. I wish I could share them all with you. There's so many good stories of people being cared for and loved on the margins. But still, when you hear this, you go, I hope you feel like I feel in that I believe that we can do so much more as a church. Not because we want to earn God's favor. We've been given God's favor. We've been shown incredible grace through the cross of Christ. And I know that you want to make that known to the world around you. So so I want us to see how we can do that. How the gospel can meet us in this call as God's people as we love God and as we try to live out this call to do justice in the world, we're going to look at justice in the gospel. And I believe this, the gospel, the good news frees us to be generous and wise in how we care for the marginalized. All justice flows from the gospel. All real justice. Okay? The gospel is the power source that brings help and hope to the image bearers of God, as the fuel for the fire that needs to burn for God's glory in the world. I'll just give you this verse, 1 Peter 2. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. You see that? Christ was marginalized. Christ was broken for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This truth is what will, will fuel us to do justice in the world in a way that brings glory and honor to God, okay? Think about the ways that, that these two things connect. First, the gospel protects us from only offering temporal care, only offering physical care for people, right? That's a concern. There's a concern that the church just becomes another aid agency, that the church just becomes this place that dispenses physical care, but that's gonna get, that, that that will get in the way or hinder proclaiming the gospel, being evangelists to the world around us. And that's a real fear because it's really happened in organizations in the past, okay? But this is why, actually, the church is the most positioned to be out proclaiming, uh, doing good works of justice as we proclaim the good news because we are a group of people that have been justified by God. All of our needs, in an ultimate sense, have been met. Okay, we've received grace. Our greatest need of salvation before God has been met. And it's it's hard, if if we're gonna be a church that clings to the gospel, and I know you love the gospel, if we're gonna cling to that, then it's gonna be hard to lose that. And as we go out into the world, it's actually gonna fuel the way that we go and do acts of mercy and justice in the world, okay? And let me just explain why. Bluntly, if you believe in the doctrine of hell, if you believe that those who reject Jesus have in front of them eternal conscious torment because they've rejected God, then you're going to recognize that people need help. Okay, let me put it this way Piper, I saw, heard Piper say it this way We exist to relieve all suffering, especially eternal suffering. If that's our mindset, if we go, we want to go and relieve all suffering in this world and the primary suffering that people are going to encounter is the suffering for, that's due for their own sin, then we're going to be free to go and do acts of justice while we proclaim the good news of Jesus, okay? And think about this. If we did perfect justice in the world, let's pretend that Mountain View Community Church, we just like, we did it, okay? Six weeks from now, we've fixed everything. Good job, okay? We just go out, you know, everybody's cared for, everybody's taken care of. We have, there's no more need in the world, okay? If we only did that, and we didn't tell people about the greatest need that they have of salvation before a holy God, what we would do, all of that stuff would be unloving. It would be nothing. It would be useless. It would be a waste, okay? These two things must go together, hand in hand. The gospel places us in a position of trusting God to dispense justice perfectly, okay? All that retributive justice, justice for wrongdoing, in in one sense, all of that belongs to God, okay? We have institutions that enact that right now, but in an ultimate sense, God gets to deal with that. That's why in Romans 12, Paul goes, don't do vengeance. We don't do vengeance because vengeance belongs to God. We can entrust ourselves to the one who judges perfectly, okay? And he says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Okay, so we can entrust ourselves to God for his retributive justice, for the the sin and wickedness in this world, okay? But we can also entrust ourselves to God for restorative justice. It all ultimately comes from him. He's making all things new. He's the one that will wipe away every tear. He's the one that ultimately provides. We pray that prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Now imagine somebody who's hungry praying that prayer. Maybe you've prayed that prayer when you were hungry. Can God, in his infinite power, provide bread miraculously to somebody who prays that prayer? The answer is yes, absolutely. It's in the Old Testament. They did it, manna from heaven, magic bread in the wilderness. Done. God can do that, no problem. But how does God normally provide daily bread for those who need it? The farmer, the baker, the grocer, the truck driver, the mother, the father who's willing to spend their hard-earned money to provide the bread for that person who desperately needs it, okay? In one sense, we are called to, to do this restorative justice, but in another sense, all things come from God on high. All things. Those two things are not at odds with one another. Okay, and last, the gospel frees us to care generously okay there 's a spectrum I, we, we all know that there 's a spectrum of like wisdom and generosity here. okay We worry that giving money to that person on the street is just going to increase their suffering as they spend it on stuff that that makes them more dependent. We worry that if we go to a, a, a developing country that that uh, that 's just going and build a house or something that that 's just going to increase dependence that they might have, okay? It's important to give wise consideration to these things. Like we said, there's really complicated dynamics at play, and we have to consider those things, okay? But let me say this. I think that we often use that wisdom as an excuse to not be generous. I know I have. I go, I don't know how this guy's going to spend this money, so I should probably just keep it for myself and buy a Frappuccino. Okay, I'm guilty of that. I assume we all are to some degree or another. So let me just offer you a rule of thumb, okay? Be wise and be generous. Try to be both of those things. But if it's a coin toss, if you don't know and you don't have the time to know, then just err on the side of generosity and trust that God's going to deal with the rest. It's a very simple way to think about it, okay? If you know for sure it's unwise, don't do it. But if you don't know for sure and you're, you're feeling called to be generous to whatever, Just be generous because we believe that God, even in our own broken ways, in our own messed up ways, he can do the thing. He can do what needs to be done, okay? That's a practical way for us to entrust ourselves to a God who dispenses perfect justice. Okay, there are so many things you can do. There's so many actions I could call you to as, as I call us as the church to kind of do this all the more. There's all sorts of hurting and broken people in the world. There's all sorts of questions about how to do this, okay? I want to offer some practical things we can do. Just one second, but let me start by saying this. At a bare minimum, there is no reason that every person in this room cannot do this. At a bare minimum, notice the people that are in the margins. Consider that they too bear God's image And show them compassion and care. There's all sorts of people in our society that feel invisible. The poor, the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the sojourner. Okay, But there's far more than that even. The elderly, the disabled, people of another skin color, people of another sex or gender, like there's all sorts of ways that that people can feel marginalized and there's plenty of space to bring restorative justice and sometimes that's just just noticing. So start there. But then there are real tangible ways that I want to encourage us as a church. Okay? We have partnerships in the city of Fort Collins. We've intentionally said that the way that we're going to do this kind of ministry is not by recreating the wheel and, and creating an internal organization within Mountain View that does this stuff. But we are going to intentionally partner with organizations that love the Lord and are doing this work well in our city and in our state and in our country and around the world, okay? So instead of recreating a soup kitchen here, we're going to partner with people that are caring for those that, ha- that, have, that are experiencing hunger. And we're going, to, we're going to come alongside and support them because they're doing it well, okay? There's two places I want to point you to. Number one is Serve 6.8. Serve 6.8 is an organization in Fort Collins that is focused on providing resources and mobilizing people to care for the needs of the marginalized in northern Colorado. There are so many ways... I was talking to them before, there are so, every sing, they could put every single one of us to work. Okay, there's tons of needs. And, and at any age, there's ways for you to serve. Okay. There's stuff you can do there to to proclaim Christ through common the common good of of care and justice to the world around us. Okay. Uh, the other one is Fort Collins Rescue Mission. Fort Collins Rescue Mission has been in Northern Colorado for a number of years, providing resources for people who are experiencing homelessness and addiction. They have two shelters in Fort Collins where you can go and serve meals. You can sign up to volunteer and go serve meals. Very simple way to to support. Um, you can. They have Harvest Farm, which is a, a facility for men experiencing addiction and homelessness. And, and they're receiving treatment and care and, and development so that they can step back into the world in a way that's healthy. Um, so you can, if you're equipped to do so, you can serve as a mentor there. There's all sorts of ways that you can connect and support them. Of course, both of these organizations would joyfully take your money, too. And that's a great use of it. We, you know, we've, we've talked to these people. We know that they're doing work for the common good of our city, and we want to get behind that. So go talk to them out, out in the uh, commons after this. Talk to either of those or both of them. Consider giving your time, your energy, your money to these organizations. Okay, Nepal sponsorships that Kevin was talking about, so simple. We know for sure that that money is going to children in need that are connected to a, a crossway network church. There's no reason that a church this size couldn't care for every single one of those kids, no problem. Okay, so talk about the Nepal sponsorships out there. Okay, there's so many other things. You could do. The Lord might be calling you to do any number of things, and I just want to encourage you to take that one meaningful step, whatever it is. If you need to have a conversation with me uh, or somebody at our connect table, we'd love to help answer questions if we can. Um, talk to your life group. Think about ways that you might serve together. There's all sorts of things that we can do as we bring justice into this world. The gospel is big. It's big in our lives, and we want to make it big in the world, and the means by which we're going to do that is by proclaiming the good news to a world and and bringing restorative justice to the world as well. So I'm excited for what the Lord's going to do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your kindness to us. We thank you and praise you for the gospel. Would you be glorified in our midst? Would you use us for the good of the world around us, Lord? I pray that people would look at Mountain View Community Church as a means of grace by which those who are on the margins are brought into, primarily brought into the kingdom of God and brought into salvation and and unity with God through Jesus, Lord. But would we be a people who are just generously pouring out for the good of others, Lord. We We want to proclaim the love that you've given us through these simple means, Lord. So use us for your glory and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name.